Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, good day, no matter where you are. My name is Glenn Daniels, and I'm the COO of Touchstone Publishing. And I want to take a moment before we dive into our guest today, just to give you an idea of who he is. We're going to talk today with David Susan. Now, David Susan is dedicated to improving sales, leadership, and personal performance. Now, us in the nonprofit industry, or you in the nonprofit industry, are probably saying we have nothing to do with sales and you're ready to click off. I'm going to debate you a little bit on that. What David brings to the table is a formula that you can use to apply to your teachers, to your healthcare co- uh, workers, your frontline employees, because we're always trying to sell things. But it goes even deeper than that. Your upper management has to sell your vision to the company, to each employee. And those are long-term sales processes that sometimes never seem to end. So David does this through training, speaking, coaching, consulting, and he has a passion that for those who want to improve their life, their leadership skills, their personal performance. So that's his passion. And it's always such a thrill to watch someone who is working to gain and help people gain a new perspective on something that will help them improve the bottom line, the bottom line being their life. David is an expert in this area. David is a performance expectation coach. He is a coach that's going to raise the expectations and raise the performance of everybody. So I want to spend the next few minutes having him talk about his involvement in creating excellence. What is David's superpower, by the way? It is his unique ability to find the keystone or the root cause to the barriers of success. How much better would your life be as a leader of a nonprofit organization or as any organization to have someone who can find out what the root cause is that's preventing you from sex, success and erasing it? You can find all of David's stuff and I'll put this in the notes, but you can find his information at David Susan. Dot com. That's David, D-A-B-I-D-S-U-S-O-N.com. Let's get started. So, David, welcome. Hey, thank you, Glenn, for having me. I so appreciate it. Well, I'm more than pleased to have you. And like I mentioned, I've known you for quite a few years, but I do want everybody to understand that you can bring a lot of value if you just stay in there. So let me just ask you right off the bat, what is a sales performance expert? So as a sales performance expert, what I do is I take my 25 plus years of sales and sales leadership experience, and I help other organizations and individuals be able to actually implement skills and techniques that they learn. Um, And the reason I call it sales performance is it truly is about how do I perform? It's not just... Here, I read a book on, on sales or sales leadership or leadership in general, and then I know it. The reality is we don't adopt what we learn as part of who we are in just a one book reading or a one day workshop or a one day seminar. So what I've learned is in order to create sustainable change, it really takes uh hand-holding and feedback over time. My, my best analogy of this is, is golf. 
I could probably teach you how to swing a golf club in a day, you know, the grip, the stance, et cetera. But that doesn't mean you're going to be on the PGA tour in a week or two or three, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It, it, learning is one thing, implementing, doing, and mastering is another. So as a sales performance coach, I, I take that 25 plus years of experience and I coach and mentor and teach and train uh, organizations and individuals how to do it. And then I actually help them implement in there and strategize within their world. So it's real world. It's not just, you know, here's a great idea. Oh, that was neat. Yeah. I attended a, a training once, but I'm not implementing it. Right. Oh yeah. I took right, a golf right. lesson. I took a golf lesson once. Yeah. How's your game? Uh, it hasn't really changed. That's yeah. what happens. <laughs> right. That's not what we want. So that's yeah. what I do. Well, tell me, Dave, and the, when you look at leaders, I mean, what can a leader take away from your, just the sales performance expert that you are? Not the whole process, but what can a leader, if I'm going to lead my company and I'm saying bring in this sales performance expert, a lot of people can say, well, we don't sell. But what can you bring to the table for the leadership in the room listening right now? You know, that's such a great question because people say, well, you know, we're not a sales organization. We're a this, we're a this, we're a this. We're a this. Okay, here's the way I see it. We are always selling our ideas. And I don't mean selling like, and no offense to use car sales people or door to door, but that's not what I mean. It, it's, it's we're conveying, we're trying to get people to buy into our ideas. So I always think people use sales as a bad word because many times our personal consumer experience hasn't been positive. I look at sales as purely helping people get what they already want or need. And usually that is to solve a problem or challenge or achieve some greater gain. So I I know a lot of who you work with, Glenn, you've shared with me are, are executives and nonprofits. So what are they selling? A vision. Yeah. Exactly. Right. They're, they, it, they're trying to get people to buy into a vision. Uh, if it was politics, it's buying into their candidate or buying into supporting a candidate. If it's, uh, if it's some other organization, they may actually be selling services. So let's say we're selling a vision. Mm-hmm. It is meeting the need of a potential supporter, donor, or someone in need. And what is their need? Well, it may be, I feel good by giving. It may be, I feel strongly about a cause. It may be, I personally have had challenges and I know your organization is in alignment. Now it's just helping touch on those feelings and emotions and desires of someone and elevating that so that they realize that what you have to offer is a better use of my time, effort, Mm -hmm. or money. Because I could have my time, effort, money somewhere else. It's just helping me or helping someone else understand what's different about your organization. Why should I put time, effort, and money toward you versus somewhere else? Okay. I want to back up just a second here because you did come upon something that often happens. Um, Salespeople are viewed as the uh, used car dealers and those type of things. And you have a process and you discuss that in your book, 180. um, And... Also, you're going to talk about the, your book, Balls. But you have this process, and I think when I deal with salespeople, I'm not liking it too much. So that, to me, that makes your job a little bit harder. Why do you do it? 
Why do I do it? That's a great question. You know, the funniest thing is I'm kind of an accidental sales expert. Um, I was introvert as a young kid. I was a math science geek. I got my degree in electrical and computer engineering, and I kind of fell into it. Um, I was actually wanting to to be kind of a te technical liaison uh, to between a company and their clients. And I ended up accidentally, in a way, I interviewed with IBM and I got hired at IBM. And I thought, you know, what a great opportunity to push myself because this is not what I would normally do. And I was at a point in my life right after college where I wanted personal change. So I went into sales and, and, and I did, I was very fortunate at IBM that IBM was not like traditional sales of other businesses. Uh, they were truly consultants. And one of the things that they taught me is you really have to understand your client and your client's client. Mm -hmm. And what you're there for is to solve a problem. So I started studying more and more and more about sales. And what I realized is I was always a problem solver. I mean, as an engineer, I'm a problem solver. So when I, I, I took a different frame or different view of selling, not that I was selling, but I was solving a problem for an organization. I was solving a problem. So I sold to nonprofits. I sold to other types of businesses. And it was just solving a problem. And if they didn't have a problem, it was understanding their business so well yes. that I knew what the problems probably were, even though they weren't always top of mind. So then what I learned is if I just learned to ask smart questions, and I'm not afraid to ask smart questions, it elevates the, the need and the pain and it makes them realize, you know what, you're right. We have that problem all the time. I wasn't thinking about it in the moment, but you're right, that is an ongoing headache we've had. We had no idea there was a way to solve it. And then what I do is ride in on, you know, the, the, the white stallion pony and solve the problem. And I go, well, look, I have, if there was a way to solve it, is that something you'd be interested in hearing about? And they're like, well, absolutely. And then it was just a natural transition to solve, either solve a problem or help them achieve a desire and a personal win or a corporate win or a business win that they had. And then it was just a natural mm -hmm. transaction. It was just a natural thing. So it wasn't, I didn't look at it as selling. And so what happened is moving forward, I realized that in order for me to differentiate myself and my approach, I couldn't continue to appear like all the other salespeople because then people do pigeonhole me, just like you said, Glenn, they put you in the, oh, you're a sales rep. So I said, I gotta be different. So I learned how to appear, approach, and, and work with clients in a manner that was different. And I had one gentleman, which is very typical of, of clientele of mine, who said to me, you know, Dave, I, I have worked for 20 years with salespeople. I have never worked with someone like you. You are so different from everyone else. And I continued to hear that over and over and I asked him what they meant. Yeah. And so what I realized is I, I really took a 180 degree swing and a 180 degree approach from the way most salespeople are, meaning I didn't come across like a salesperson. Sure, I have ex excitement and enthusiasm with you on the call, but with a client, I learned to adapt to best communicate okay. the way they needed to be communicated to. So I'm not over the top 
uh, uh, you know, this aggressive, assertive, outgoing person. I'm, I'm like a doctor. I'm just solving hmm. their pain. And so I appear differently than most. And so what I realized is I was always contrary to what I read in books and contrary to other salespeople, and it made me stand out. And so from that, I realized, you know, I kind of do 180 degree. And then right. I eventually coined that as my, my approach is 180 degree selling and 180 degree leadership and 180 degree customer service. Because in my leadership, my selling service, it's contrary to what everyone else does. And I realized it fit my personality because that describes me since I was a kid. I was always contrary. I always... I always wanted to take the different path and I just, I don't know why. I think it's because I, I was never really comfortable being a follower. And when right. I was young, I was not necessarily a leader. Mm -hmm. When I was young, I wasn't a leader. I just wasn't a follower. And yeah. it wasn't until I, I, I did more personal development and some of the things well, I wrote about in my book that re I started learning how to really be a leader. And I, still continue to have that contrary approach and it has served me well. And as I train and coach hundreds, if not thousands of people, and I speak to thousands of people all over the U S and internationally, it resonates that this be having this contrary um, approach to what's typical. It does resonate. And I have read your book and I'm going to push in a little bit of a different direction though, because the book is full of skills and techniques balls that in itself when you break this all down you're looking at skills and techniques but something i noticed that i think that maybe i want to bring out to everybody here your passion yeah i think your passion pushes you to go past the used car salesman passion how do you apply that passion how do i how are you going to teach the leaders that are listening to apply that passion to their vision to their mission so that they're operating managers and their senior vice presidents can all follow through. How would you apply that passion? Oh man, what a great question. First of all, I don't want to rag on car salesmen. But <laughs> I do. I do. I don't but, mind. <laughs> all right. So here's, here's what I've learned about goal setting. And I know you, you're, you're a goal setting expert too. What I have learned is when you are drawn towards something, it creates greater motivation. So oftentimes people will say, I have a goal of getting so many more clients or so many more supporters or so many more donors or X amount of dollars. Mm -hmm. The thing is that doesn't draw me. If I'm a leader, that doesn't necessarily excite me or pull me forward. So what I always look at is how do you reframe it? So it pulls you forward. So for example, to me, to be able to impact a thousand people in a year, or more, yeah. to be able to change a life, to be able to motivate and inspire, to be able to have a light switch turn on where someone goes, oh my gosh, I can't believe how I've struggled for years to motivate my team, inspire my team, or to sell, or get my team to sell, and I've tried everything. Oh my gosh, the way you presented it, you got to the root cause, you exposed blind spots. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Like I just got off the phone before this podcast with a client of mine and she says, you know, you, I, she goes, I've done coaching personal development my whole life. She says, what you have done 
is given me more confidence and driven and allowed me to be more fearless than anything I've ever seen or heard in my life. That is the greatest compliment I get. I, I, I live for that. I get chills when I think about it. So that motivates, inspires me. Yes. So yes. instead of saying I want a thousand clients, it's or X amount of dollars, or if I'm a, a, a leader, an executive, you know, we have financial goals, revenue goals, sales goals, whatever it is. Instead, it is what's the mission and passion that gets me up in the morning. And for me, personally, it's making change and having impact. When I led a sales team, I, I, one of the things that stints I did is we implemented consulting and technology services to impact K-12 education. And my mission was how many kids I can impact. Mm. Not how many schools, mm-hmm. not, not how much money, but how many kids' lives are we changing? And so whenever we implemented in a school district, sure, it was maybe a million dollar, two million, five million dollar solution, but 50,000 students and you're changing a life. So to answer your question, to, to get the passion and excitement, it's reframing. And then it's selling that, and I hate the word selling in this context, but then it's sharing that vision okay. with, with the people that you want to support you. So they buy into the excitement uh, and the passion and the mission of what you're doing. It's not just give me money it's not just make a sale. It's, it's let's change a life or solve a problem. And you get, you get the people, especially nonprofits, you get the people that buy into the, 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 the vision and the passion and that, and you got to find out what floats their boat, you know, what excites them. Right. But that's right. what I would say. Well, now I don't want to mislead people and have people thinking that this is a motivational book, your book balls. Hold that up for us real quick. So everybody can yeah, see yeah. that. Okay. Um, it is somewhat yeah perfect. It is somewhat motivational. Okay, I will I won't deny that. But what it does do, it brings you skills and techniques to use. Tell us a little bit about some of the skills and techniques. Uh, you know, if you have a moment, tell us about the predict. Yeah. Well, let me tell you about the about the book and how it came about. So I had interviewed uh, about three thousand top performers, sales, sales leadership, executives, things like that, and what I found was some of the most successful people were not always the ones that always had the best skill, but they exhibited three core traits. And I started noticing the traits over and over and over in, in leaders, in salespeople, in, in you, you know, and I boiled it down. I said, well, what was it? I said, you know, number one there, they tend to be fearless, meaning, what I've learned when I teach leadership is I teach that, that leaders, the best leaders tend to be the most decisive leaders. And in order to be decisive, you got to make a decision. You got to be fearless. You, you can't him and haw. You, you can't be wishy-washy. People don't want to follow wishy-washy leaders. You have to be decisive, but to be decisive, you got to be fearless. So I started noticing that the best salespeople are also fearless. They're fearless in decision-making. They're fearless in pursuing. Right. They're per- fearless in asking. They're fearless in sharing their, their, their views. And this fearlessness pervades everything in their, their life. It's fearless in you know, making a decision. They're not afraid to be wrong. They're not afraid to recommend. They're not afraid to, you know, here's a great restaurant, go to it. Here's a great movie. They're, they, they're, they're fearless in 
recommendation in everything they do. So number one, I, I realized they were fearless. Um, number two, I realized that the best leaders, the best salespeople, the best in anything, oftentimes, oftentimes, especially in sales, they set the goal to be number one. And to test this theory, I would ask top performers, where at the beginning of the year, I, say, I would say, where do you think you're going to be ranked at the end of the year? And they go, well, number one. Mm. You ask an average performer and they say, you know, top 50%. So I was watching what, one of the examples that really made this. So, so first of all, so number two, they, they're driven to be number one and they set a goal of being number one in their organization for their team, for themselves. Right. And once they set the vision to be number one, they work, they work to the level required to hit the goal. If their goal is only be top 50%, they only work as hard as that vision. And I saw this when I was watching an interview of Olympic uh, Olympians back in 2002, and they interviewed one skier who made the Olympic team. And they said, how do you think you're going to do in the Olympics? He goes, I don't know. I'm just happy to have made the team. Right. And I was thinking that was his goal. So we only worked as hard to do that. But a gold medalist, they work as hard as it required to get the gold. And so the, the guy that actually won the gold in the uh, downhill skiing, and I tell the story, is I'll give you the quick abbreviated version. Mm -hmm. Going into the final run, uh, downhill skiing in the Olympics, he was, had such a margin lead in the lead, all he had to do was make it down the hill and not screw up just an average time, and he would have meddled. Mm -hmm. But he, he went all out, balls to the wall, as I say, and he almost wiped out he ended up not wiping out and he ends up winning the gold. And they said in the interview after, they said, why did you risk everything? And he says this, I didn't come here to just get a medal. I came here to get the gold. So he played to win. And so they, they play balls to the wall is what I call it. And then the third thing I noticed in interviewing thousands of people is, um, especially in sales, what I noticed when I was a sales manager and, and even early in my career, oftentimes salespeople drop the ball. You know, I would ask my sales reps, hey, so what's the status of that deal? And they're, you know, they look at you like a deer in the headlights and they're like, oh, I gave them a proposal last week. I haven't heard back from them. And I'm like, what do you mean you haven't heard back from them? Well, they haven't called me back. They said they were going to call me. I haven't heard from them. And I'm like, you're, right. you're being reactive. Okay. When I look at the top performers, they're proactive. They don't forget to make the call. They're always on top of their schedule. They get done more in a day than most. And part of what drives them to get more done is decisiveness leads to more action. But then they're on top of it, whether they're, they have a better memory or a better schedule. So they don't drop balls. So the reason I named the book Balls, The Three Secrets of Success, is top performers have balls. They're fearless. Number two, they play balls to the wall, right? They're driven. They're motivated. They're excited to be number one. And number three, they don't drop balls. They're on top of it. They get more done in a day. So that's how I came up with the title for balls. It, and, and I know it sounds simple and in concept, it's simple, but to do it, it's a lot, some of it's technique, but some of it's just head trash what holds us back. And I'm a root cause guy. So what I do as a performance expert is I work with people to get to root cause of what holds you back from being more motivated. What holds you back from being decisive? What holds you back from 
from uh, you know fear from making right. a right. making a cold call, making a donor call, following up with someone, um, what asking the tough questions. Okay. That's why I call it balls. I want to ask you before you go on into some of the techniques that you're sharing. Of those three, do you find one of those has more of a driving force, more of a root cause? I mean, which one is larger of the problem, would you say? Yeah, awesome question. And everything, what I have found with all of the clients that I coach, it always comes down to fearlessness, having balls. And the funniest thing is when I first start working with someone, they say, mm -hmm. I'm fearless. And then we get into dialogue over, you know, over time, over the weeks. And, and I realize they think they're fearless. They might be fearless jumping out of an airplane. They might be fearless, uh, you know, traveling, but they're, they're not hundred percent fearless. They're, they have decisiveness issues. They have something that holds them back in their life. Um, and it almost always comes down to, to, to this fearlessness. And I almost hate to call it fearlessness because some people automatically go, Oh, I'm fearless. But it's kind of the broader umbrella. Mm -hmm. um, an example mm -hmm. of this, that one that I used to have a problem with when I was young, I, I younger, I didn't realize that I had an issue with it, but um, you know, I would analysis paralysis, right? I'd right. overthink stuff. Well, that's because of fear. It's fear of making a wrong decision okay. or, you know, Glenn, you say, Hey, I'm going to be in Denver and what rec restaurant would you recommend? And I would say, Oh, there's this great restaurant, you know, and I would start describing the restaurant, but then I would always give myself an out if you didn't like it because I would hate to recommend it. And then you go, Dave, what a horrible recommendation. The yeah, food yeah. sucked and it was overly mm -hmm. priced and parking was 20 bucks just to get there. And I had to valet and it's white cloth table and I was in shorts and you didn't tell me that. And the problem is, because I was so afraid of what you might think of me or so afraid that I would look stupid or dumb or not smart or that I lacked integrity because my God, if I had integrity, I would never tell you to go to that restaurant. So the problem is I would him and haw about my recommendation. Uh, and what I realized is when you're fearless, you are more decisive. You're not wishy-washy. So what you do is you go, Hey, Glenn, great restaurant. Go here. And then you come back yeah. and you say, you know, it really sucked. I didn't like it. And I would say, I'm so sorry. You know, Dave, I saw, and I'm taking what you're saying, and I'm applying it to one of my clients right now, where they're having a problem with their employees. Okay. Nonprofits, as a rule, can't pay as much as the, the public sector can. In some cases, I mean, they have the government. In some cases. Yeah. They yeah. have that government finance package, and that's all they can do. They're having an issue with actually filling what they call the the parking lot with potential candidates. So if this person leaves, they have another candidate ready to go. And part of that comes down, and I'm sharing this with you because when you said, we're talking about this number one issue, that's their issue. They don't want to interview people to not give them the job, maybe have to call them later on and be told, well, no, I took another job. What's the fear behind that? There shouldn't be a fear behind that. They should just fill that parking lot up. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, absolutely. You, should, you always have to have, you know, I, I teach leadership too, and you always have to have your, your next candidates in line. And one of the things that I always think is, you know, people who struggle to get good candidates, just look at companies like Starbucks or Google. 
right? They have mm-hmm. people, or, or Southwest Airlines, right? A couple examples. They have thousands of applications when there's a job. Why? Because they attract people. And so the first thing I would say is, is your company attracting the talent you want? And you say, I don't know how to do that. Well, that's where leadership, true leadership comes in. It's learning how to motivate, inspire, and change the morale and the vision of an organization. So first of all, your your number one salespeople are your employees, just like the companies I mentioned where they go, God, I love working here. It's the greatest, the greatest, the greatest. And now everyone else is like, I want to work for a great boss. I wish I had a great boss. I don't have a great boss. I wish I had a boss that loved me and cared for me. So that's number one. You, You get people so excited internally first, just like at Southwest, or, or, or Virgin, right? Read some of the stuff from uh, Richard Branson. Yeah, he talks yeah. about, you know, your customer doesn't come first, your employees come first. You change the perspective so you increase the, the motivation and the morale of your employees. They become your best salespeople. So number two, they, people start, this starts, people see this. And so when you begin to interview others, it, it's, you have a desire to work at your organization. First of all, the mission the passion, but the employees, and you become the greatest place to work. And people are willing to forego big salaries, just like you said, for a better place to work. And, and how do I know this? Interviewing 3,000 people, right? right? All the right. time, there's people I met that are like, you know, you can make more somewhere else. I talked to this guy, interviewed this guy. He was late 20s. I said, what do you do? And he worked in IT. Mm-hmm. And I said, so I said, how's, you know, how's the career, the pay? He goes, you know, it's good. He goes, if I change jobs, he goes, I could probably bump my salary by 20 grand. And I go, Mm -hmm. 20 grand. I go, that's significant. He goes, yeah, except I love my boss. Yeah. He supports me. Yeah. I love the mission. I love what we're doing. And I said, and what I realized after I interviewed thousands of people is that was the number one reason people don't change shops is they love their boss. So what am I telling you as a leader listening to this right now? It, it's learning how to, how to get your people to want to follow you in battle, no matter what. And once they get excited, they're, you're willing, you can attract people, even if your pay is not as competitive as somewhere else, if they love coming to work. I was thinking, think of it this way, Glenn, if you, let's say you work an average eight to five job, right? Right. Right. That's nine hours. Plus the amount of time you're commuting and preparing to go to work an hour plus the commute home. So now we're Mm -hmm. nine, 10, roughly 11 hours of your day, 11 hours of your day are committed to the, the, the career. How much of your time is awake during the day committed to you and your life, your family? Half that. Yep, 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 yep. Exactly. So you're spending more time at work and career. So why not make it the greatest 11 hours you can? And the better organizations know how to do this. People like you, people, right, know how to coach and mentor these teams to get them excited so they, they create this environment that everyone wants to work at. So the answer to your question is you fill the parking lot by, first of all, becoming somewhere where people want to work. Right. And the buzz, even if you're a small group, it doesn't matter, but you create this buzz and it's doable. It starts at the top though. This doesn't yes. start at the bottom. 
no, it starts at the top, top. and it yeah. starts with a mindset first and a mind shift that we can and will. And then there's a payoff by learning to do this. And then it's starting to backfill these positions and getting, knowing, you know, that where your next best hire is going to be. I, I worked for an organization and they told managers one third of your time should be spent recruiting. Yes. One third. Yeah. Yeah. So you're constantly looking for uh, quality. In fact, my wife years ago, she got hired. She was very young in her career. She was a manager uh, selling fine jewelry and a uh, gentleman walked in to buy a, you know, super, super expensive, ridiculous, expensive watch. Yeah. And he ended up being a manager in a fortune 500 company. And he says, I want you to come work for me. Hmm. So he was on the rec- and so she ended up eventually leaving that job, going to work for him and it shifted the direction of her career. So he's an example of, he was always, he was a talent scout. He was always looking for talent. I, I'll give, I was just going to take that. Yeah. I disc- one more quick example. Yeah, please, please. Sorry. One more, no problem. because it was kind of funny to me. I had met, um, I interviewed many years ago with a company called SAP, big, big yeah. corporation. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the gentleman in the interview said, he goes, Dave, I love you, but he goes, I'm not going to hire you. I said, hmm. why? He says, you're not right for this job. You should be at a, a higher level. You should be at a more of an executive leadership than what this is. I think this job is below you. And he says, as much as I love you, I'd love to hire you. I don't have another role for you, but I just think this would, you wouldn't be happy. This would be a mistake. And I believe, I loved his honesty. So I get a call four years later, maybe hmm. five years later from him. Okay. And he's now working for a company called salesforce.com. Ah, and okay. he's living in San Francisco corporate headquarters. He calls me up and he says, I don't know if you remember me, but I inter- interviewed you four or five years ago. And um, if you remember, I didn't have an opportunity for you. He goes, I want you to come work for me. Oh, because he had, he was fearless enough to say, you're not right right now. Because I don't right want right to, but, yeah. but talent scout, you, you build, you build your book, you build your list of quality candidates and you keep an eye out for rock stars and you keep a book, you keep a list, whether it's LinkedIn an Excel spreadsheet, a piece of paper, and you stay in touch with these people on a regular mm-hmm. basis or you yeah. post or you do whatever you have to do and they're your next hire. And then yep. you, you, that's how you start to build it, but they're not going to come work for, for you or your organization if you don't attract quality and you're a stepping stone down. You need to be an organization where the buzz is, this is the greatest place to work. And it's not about money. It's not about the money. It's about the passion, the vision, the mission, and how well you sell it. 